Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us for a look at science is Wendy Zuckerman, host and executive producer of the Science Versus podcast on Spotify and formerly, of course, of ABC Science. In fact, Wendy and I spoke years ago before she went on to fame and fortune in New York. Wendy, good evening. Welcome back to Nightlife. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. Bariatric surgery. You'll explain what that is, I hope. It helps nearly half of patients get off type 2 diabetes treatment within a year. Yeah, this is sort of stomach stapling, is as it's sometimes known. Although there's a few different kinds. When people go go in for surgery, when they're, it's one of the um, the best treatments we have hmm. uh, to fight obesity. In fact, and you get your stomach, depending on the kind of surgery you're doing, shrunk to about the size of an egg, the upper stomach. So if you think of an egg, you're making your stomach very, very small. Really, we've known for years now that this is a, a great way for people to lose weight. Mm-hmm. But now this study is showing that it's also a good way to help with your diabetes. Really? Tell us about the research. So so why, why does it help diabetes? Did we do yeah, it? well, so let me tell you more. So what these researchers did is they followed about 130 people for a year mm-hmm. um, who had had this surgery. It's a study from Queensland, and they were looking for all sorts of changes. We're talking BMI, diabetes, liver function, and what's important to know, I've sort of given you a spoiler alert here, but is that that most of the people in the study had had diabetes for at least a year, for at least eight years before they did their surgery. So, so they're having this condition for a long time. And then not to the researchers' surprise, the vast majority of people lost weight on this trial by a lot. We're talking on average 28 kilos. But what what was really exciting, as I mentioned, is that so within one month of surgery, roughly a third of the patients had discontinued all of their diabetes medications. By the end of the year, that went up to more than 40%. So to go to your question of why does this happen? Well, what the research is telling us, and I should say this isn't the first study to tell us this. Mm. I, I love when we have a body of research all kind of pointing towards the same thing. And what the research is is showing us is that bariatric surgery doesn't just help people lose weight because your stomach is smaller and you're not eating as much, but it also has this profound effect on the way that our hormones are working. So mm-hmm. hormones play this really important role in telling us when to eat and when to not eat. And so by making our stomach smaller, we're, we're changing the way that that is happening. And so we think that these hormones also are playing a role in insulin and how we produce it. And that's where the diabetes comes into the picture. Mm. So it's a, it's a really exciting sort of area of research. We're not, we're not talk, we wouldn't be talking about bariatric surgery to specifically assist type 2 diabetes, would we? I mean, it's a hectic surgery. Yeah, I know. I will say, I mean, as you can imagine, making your stomach tiny, this is a big deal for patients. Um, You know, interestingly, in this study, they actually asked the patients, like, what did you think? Like, over time, Hmm. was this a good idea for you? Literally, they asked them, are you happy with your treatment? And the vast majority were. But they also experienced some some pretty serious side effects. You were talking diarrhea, vomiting. For the first few weeks, you can really only have liquids. So I I wonder where we are heading with this. Um, and I think it's really going to be up to the patient to say, do they do they want to go through this or are they happy with the way that their diabetes is being managed now? Mm. 
Okay. All right. Uh, now, on the subject of health and, uh, health and well-being, a British Journal of Sports Medicine study shows that ex- – or published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine shows that uh, exercise uh, physical activity is up to one and a half times more effective than anything else in managing mental health. Yeah, so this study comes, I think, at a curious time in mental health research. We've really been at a standstill. I think a lot of people who are struggling with things like depression and anxiety, while the medications work well for some people, they are far, far from silver bullets. uh, And the studies have kind of been all over the place when you compare antidepressants to placebo, for example. Um, You know, some studies show it works, some don't. It's a big hullabaloo in, in scientific research. But what we can say for sure is they, they clearly work for some people. Mm. But in the midst of all this, these medicines aren't perfect. Researchers have started looking elsewhere. And exercise is, is one place that they've really put their attention towards. Now, this new study, unlike what I was just talking about, which was a clinical trial finding new data, this research is actually a review of a review. So oh. they actually took 79 review papers that had looked at clinical trials into exercise and mental health, ultimately encompassing more than 120,000 people. And all of these studies were basically asking the question, can physical activity help to manage mental health conditions like depression, like anxiety? And overall, they find that the answer is yes. Yes. Which is, which is great news. And what this um, review paper did that is a little bit different to some of the others that we see out there is that they really looked at all types of physical activity. We're talking your classics, walking, resistance training, but also Pilates and yoga. Mm-hmm. And they found that everything can help at least a little bit. <laughs> they, yeah, which, yeah, which I think is, is really great. They did find like higher intensity physical activity was associated with greater improvements. And I, I think this this area is, it's, like I said, it's curious because whenever we find a benefit like this, the next question, which I'm sure you're about to ask, is why? Why does it work? Yeah. And scientists love coming up with these. As a science journalist, I love these very biological answers of which Sometimes you know, people say mm. serotonin gets boosted when you do exercise, possibly reducing brain inflammation. But it could be something as simple as, you know, some of these activities were group exercises. You're doing yoga with other people. So just that social element. In some cases, when people go for a run, they're outside, they're in nature. And we know from other research that being in nature can help your mental health as well. But I should say Mm -hmm. a word of caution because I think we start to see things, particularly on social media, suggesting that we're all just one run away from perfect mental health. Um, I'm sure we've seen some annoying friend posting something on Facebook about how fabulous their run was and how they, they feel so great and you should try it too. And I wouldn't want this study to show that exercise is a magic bullet because in no way is that what a review paper like this is showing. Mm. So, for example, if I want to pour a little bit of cold water on this, um, when you sort of dig deeper into what some of these studies are doing, we talked a little about the placebo effect before and how that is has been like a real problem with antidepressant drugs. So when you're testing whether an exercise can help with depression, What placebo can you use? Because people know they're going for a run. You can't 
have a fake exercise. Can't have and a we fake can't, run, no. <laughs> you can't go on a fake run as much as I wish I could. So what these studies will sometimes do is is put people on a wait list. So basically you just get told you you can start your exercise later when the list is completed, which you're never going to do because the study will be done. Mm. And I don't know whether that's a great control, going for a run versus just living your life and being on a wait list. <laughs> so then when we find that, oh, exercise is better than a wait list, I'm not that excited about it. <laughs> so I just want to say I think it's an absolutely great idea to do exercise. We know it's beneficial for so many things, heart disease, cancer, and the evidence is pointing towards a benefit with mental health. But if you are struggling and you go for a run or a walk and you're not feeling 100%, don't blame yourself is what I Fair I think enough. Of. Wendy Zuckerman's with us, host and EP of the Science Versus podcast on Spotify, formerly of ABC Science. Uh, how about this one? The famous poet, Chilean poet, Pablo Neruda. Many listeners would know his work. There's evidence that he may have been poisoned. Now, he was... He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1971, a marvellous poet, but he was a left-winger. He was a member of the Chilean Communist Party, and he lived at a time, of course, when such people were commonly the targets of uh, assassination attempts. Was Pablo Neruda poisoned, Wendy? Well, a very, very interesting investigation is at play trying to answer this very question. So the suspicions that popped up. So Pablo Neruda died um, with advanced prostate cancer. So mm -hmm. we have some people saying, case closed. What are, you, what are you talking about? Why this conspiracy theory around murder? As you mentioned, he was a member of the Communist Party and he died 12 days after General Pinochet overthrew the socialist government, which Neruda supported. Anyone who, I know that your audience knows a lot about General Pinochet, not someone I want to have around for tea. Mm. So there was this big question, and it has led to this decades-long investigation into what killed Neruda. Was it just the cancer, or was there something something foul afoot? And back in uh, about 10 years ago, in 2013, a judge ordered to exhume Neruda's remains, and all of these scientists screened his body for all of these chemical agents that might cause poisoning, and they didn't find anything, but they didn't stop searching. Two mm. years later... A different. This is how invested the people of Chile are. Two years later, they got a new batch of scientists to check again with new science because we ha always have new technology to search for things. And suddenly what we found was DNA fragments from the bacteria that causes botulism. They were found in his teeth. Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. Uh -huh. So now... The, you know, the family of Neruda were like, this is it. We've, this is mm. evidence. He is poisoned. But science being science, there was this question of perhaps the bacteria got there through contamination because this bacteria lives in soil. And, you know, with all due respect, this guy's been dead for a long time and in soil. So could, could the bacteria have gotten mm. teeth after he died? So then science... Very, very likely. <laughs> I, well, so I would have thought... But what's amazing is the science, again, continues to progress. And so now we actually have a technique that scientists can use to, to test and to see whether it was contamination or he was poisoned. And so what they did, I, I just find this so fascinating, is they looked at the DNA from Neruda's body, from his bones, and then the DNA that was the, the, the bacteria 
had. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for how degraded it was. Because as, as we know, over time, bacteria gets degraded. And by now it had been decades. And so they could see basically the rate at which the DNA was degrading. And if it was about the same, so the, the DNA in Neruda's body had degraded at about the same rate as the bacteria's DNA, mm-hmm. that would be a, a really important clue to suggest that this poison was in his body at the time of his death. And that is, in fact, what they found, that the rate of degradation was about Ah, so it was there. Okay. Well. So to, to the uncle, who is the, uh, the family lawyer as well, he says, this is you know, case closed. Now we have it. Science being science, there's always mm. something else. So some scientists are now saying, you know, perhaps he, was, he wasn't poisoned, but he accidentally ate this in his food. Perhaps the bacteria got into his teeth very soon after he was, he was buried. Mm-hmm. So we don't have the science to be able to like put an exact time point on it. Interesting. Interesting. And it just continues, but perhaps leaning towards mm. poison. Now, how about this one? Archaeologists have uncovered brain surgery more than 3,000 years ago. Uh, you wouldn't think, have thought that there was a very good outcome for patients, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, this <laughs> no, was during, and- during the Bronze Age, I mean, for heaven's sake. That's right. And, you know, for the patient I'm about to tell you about, he didn't fare well, um, but it is a a really interesting finding. So uh, this is from an archaeological dig in Tel Megiddo, which is in modern Israel, really important archaeological site during Mm -hmm. the Bronze Age. So we're talking roughly 15,000 BC. And in this site, it's this wealthy urban centre. I think I imagine the Bronze Age prior to reading this paper is a, a bit of a non-cultural event, but mm-hmm. in this site they've found palaces and temples and gates and jewellery, bronze jewellery, but also gold and silver. And in this site there was a tomb that indeed had had some of that jewellery and sort of a little bit like how I think people imagine an ancient Egyptian tomb, although mm-hmm. not as beautiful. And in it were two adult men, brothers, who'd been DNA tested. And in one of them, in one of their skulls, a large, well, the paper called it large, but you decide for yourself, a square piece of bone had been removed. It was roughly the size of a 50-cent piece. The person had been tree-panned. That's exactly right. That's exactly a process called trephination, Mm, um, which is where you remove a piece of skull of a a living person. You can often do it. That's right. Sometimes if people had not, I mean, they used to do it in the 17th and 18th centuries too, didn't they? 19th century, they used to do it. Uh, Somebody received a a head injury, they could take out a piece of the skull and reduce the swelling. But the trouble is usually what happened is that that did work, but then the brain tissue got infected and the person died anyway. Well, this I, this is what I find really fascinating about this. So this idea of trephination, we have it, you know, 3,000 years ago in this study. Mm. Then 2,000 years later, we see it in Peru. And remarkably, I was reading a paper today that found survival rates at 83%. So they, with little evidence of ensuing infection, I don't know what, what yeah. the Incans were doing, but clearly they had something down pat. Uh, but then, as you say, we, we have kept... We, we've been doing this for quite a long time. There's also evidence the Beaker people were doing it in the UK. It's, it seems there was something intuitive about let's let's cut open the skull and let the pressure out. For this person, as I as I say, it didn't go down well. 
uh, the paper writes, the trephination was done piecemeal, which is never mm. something you want to hear about your no, race. I don't right? want piecemeal trephination. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, but it's they, interesting that they that they had divi- that, that's right, they, they d- divined a possible cure, even if they couldn't execute it properly. That, yes, that's, and the, the researchers said that there was this, it, it, although they this was done piecemeal, it wasn't willy-nilly. There was clearly a, an approach to it. You could see that they sort of put two holes, two initial grooves, and then sort of removed the flap of the skin. This was a, and, and did it carefully enough so we think it didn't affect the underlying tissue in the brain, at least hmm. at first. You know, So they weren't just jamming in utensils. There was a process to this. So, but it didn't work well uh, based on how the bones, you can see whether the bones have, have healed sure. and how long the person lived after. And the, the researchers say he mm. probably died within a week or two of the procedure. There you are. Interesting. Wendy, great to talk um, as always. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.